good to see you guys today. Hope you're doing really, really well. Um, so last week we started a brand new series in the book of First Peter. Who wrote First Peter? Peter. And First Peter was was what book? Was it the first book he wrote, or the second book he wrote? I'm making sure you're awake this morning. First Peter was the the third book he wrote. Correct. No, no, no. So it is the first, uh, it's the first book he wrote. Um, so we, we talked last week about, we, we asked the questions, who was Peter and why did he write? And we answered those two questions mainly last week. Uh, we saw how when Peter was just a young fisherman, uh, Jesus invited him to follow him. And uh, you can check out that story um, in the book of Matthew. We talked about it last week. His original name was what? His original name was Simon. Someone said uh, uh, Seth, Cephas, which that's actually his, um, his new name. It means rock, um, which is translated to Peter um, in English. But, um, so his original name was Simon, and Jesus renames him Peter, which means rock, which if you're going to get a new name, the rock is a pretty cool name to have, right? That's a pretty good name to have. Uh, so Jesus said, um, you are Peter and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And Peter didn't just get a new name, but we see in the gospels and also through the book of Acts and also in his, in his writings, in the first and second Peter, we see how, um, Peter became a new man. So Peter didn't just, didn't just get a new name. He became a new man. We see his transformation, um, throughout the scriptures and we talked about, we asked the question, why did Peter write? Peter is in Rome. So he, he went from Jerusalem all the way over to Rome. And in 64 AD, uh, what happened in Rome? There was a big event. What was the event? Remember? There was a big fire in Rome. And Nero was the emperor. And people, so there's this big fire that breaks out in the city of Rome. And people turn on the emperor and they blame the emperor for the fire. Which, let's just think about that for just a minute. If, if there's a huge fire that breaks out in the city in which you're in charge of, and the first person that people think about setting it is you, and you're the emperor, then you probably don't have the best reputation, Right? They think that, hey, who's the first person we can think of? Who would, who would be so evil as to set this fire? Okay, I know. Um, I think the guy in charge, Nero, he's probably the one that set the fire. So you can already understand, like, they, they don't trust this guy. There's a reputation issue. He's got a reputation, um, Nero does, and the people don't really trust him. So as a result of this, Nero... Um, doesn't want the blame, so he decides to blame the Christians. And this great um, persecution breaks out um, in Rome because of what Nero uh, did as, as, as he blames the Christians for this fire in Rome. Now, I don't want to mislead you because last week we talked about all the, the physical persecution that was happening in Rome at the time, but I don't want to mislead you because the, uh, there was physical persecution happening in Rome, but it doesn't mean that, that that physical persecution like went throughout the entire empire immediately. What we think is happening 
um, at the time that Peter is writing is that in the, the, the um, Asia Minor, what's now known as Turkey, that in this part of the world, there was an intellectual and a social persecution, not necessarily a physical persecution. So put my map up on the screen here so you can see, have a visual. So if you know your, um, your geography, uh, right there, sort of upper right corner, all the words says Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, that's modern day Turkey. And this is the area that Peter is writing to um, in First Peter. Peter's all the way over there. Italy's easy to find. It's the, the boot kicking the football, right? So that's easy to find. So Rome's in the middle of Italy, and he's writing over to what's now modern-day Turkey. And what would happen is this courier would take this letter and circulate it among all the churches in Asia Minor, in what's now modern-day Turkey. And this is how this letter was circulated throughout the church. So many believe there was not a physical persecution happening in the place that Peter's writing to, but it was going to be coming. There was at least an intellectual and a social persecution happening um, in the church at that time. And um, we showed you last week how what was happening in Rome, and maybe you can't relate to what was happening in Rome because what's happening in Rome is really uh, a lot of death, a lot of physical persecution, and maybe you can't really relate to that, but I think you can relate to what's happening in Asia Minor where Peter's writing. Because what's happening there is the social and the intellectual persecution. And I I think that many of you probably experience this in your circles. And this is why we're studying this book. Because we want you to be able to understand how to engage people that might not think like you. And might not be like you. And uh, so this is why we're studying the book of 1 Peter. Um, We don't want to just give you hope. Our point today is not to say, oh, pity the Christians as they get persecuted for their faith, but it's to to give you hope, but it's also to help you engage those that are around you. And uh, so this is our motive as we study this book. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 1. And today is more like an introduction part 2. We're getting into more introduction stuff today. So 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, when you're studying the scriptures, I want you to look at every word, because everything has meaning when you're looking at the inspired word of God. So the first thing, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Just think how significant those first words are. And Peter's, he's either writing this or he's dictating this to a, an assistant, someone to write things down, which don't don't you want people in your life to, like, write things down for you? Like, don't you feel important if you have someone like, hey, can you write this down? And, like, you snap your finger and they go do it. So Peter apparently had someone like that in his life. And it was an assistant of some kind. And this guy wrote some stuff down for Peter. And so the first words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Remember, this is the man who denied Jesus. We discussed this last week. This is the man who denied Jesus at the crucifixion. 
And now he is recording in history for all to see. My name is Peter, and I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And there it is, right there for all of history to see. He's not shying away anymore. He's not denying Jesus anymore. He is fully acknowledging. He's using his new name. He's saying, I am a new man, and I have a new name, and my name is Peter, and I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's who I am. There's no more questioning. There's no more doubting. He knows who he is. And he calls himself an apostle. And this word apostle, it means messenger or someone who's sent by Jesus. And look what he refers to these people as. He's writing, he says they're elect exiles. So what is an, what is an elect exile? Well, exile means stranger. And we're going to talk about this throughout the entire series, how as a Christian, you are going to appear alien and strange to those people around you that don't agree with you on the fundamentals of what you see to be true. If you don't look somewhat strange to those around you, then you might not be living out your faith in the proper way. That's just going to be a reality when it comes to your faith. Another way to say this would be not just strangers and aliens, but the way Christians should be in the culture today would be resident aliens. Like you and I are to be a resident alien in our culture. And here's what that means. When we talked about our New York City mission trip uh, a couple of months ago, we go to New York City on a mission trip and we minister to people who have moved here from somewhere else. So they are living here. They are residents here in the U.S. Some are not citizens yet. Some are wanting to become citizens. But they are residents of the U.S. But they are alien. They are not from here. So they are resident aliens. They live here, but they're not from here. And this is what a Christian is to be. Someone who lives here, but you're not from here. And when you and I think of alien, our minds initially go to, you think of what? You think of outer space. You think of that word. You think of the, the crazies in, where's that place at? New Mexico? Roswell. Everyone knows. Anyone been there? A few of you guys have been there. You've done a little tourist stop in Roswell, New Mexico. Um, which, by the way, can we just be honest? The people who think up what aliens might look like have to be some of those uncreative people in the world. Like, let's just make them green and have a bigger head and bigger eyes. Done. Alien. That's what they must look like. Let's make them look like a human and a grasshopper had a baby. That'll, that'll be perfect. And the tourists will come and they'll believe it. It'll be great. We'll make lots of money. But what's an alien? Alien is someone who's not from here. An alien is someone who's not from here. Now, how many of you guys have traveled outside the country? Raise your hand. And I don't mean like outside of Texas, because I know that you think Texas is its own country. But So raise your hand real high. Outside, wow, most of you, wow. Okay, Canada and Mexico, put your hands down. Everyone else, keep your hands up. Oh, I thinned out a little bit. All right, so, um, 
So you've been to some other countries, and you've seen other cultures, and when you visited those places, did it feel just like home? No. Now, Canada, you might say, yeah, it felt just like down here. But other places, it doesn't feel like home. Everything, in some places, almost everything is different. I mean, the, the food's different. The music is different. The smells are different. The climate is different. The people act different. The clothes are different. How they get around, everything is just different. The strangest place, or the, I shouldn't say strangest place, but the place that I've been where it was most unlike the U.S. was when I went to the Middle East about a year and a half ago, almost two years ago now. And we were in um, the United Arab Emirates and also went over to Oman, which is a neighboring country on the Arabian Peninsula. And it is a very, very different place, the most different place from here that I've ever been. And here's the ways in which it's different. Um, you get off the plane, you're in the airport, and you notice the men. I mean, all the men wear these outfits that you would wear in your, like, fifth grade Christmas production. They look like shepherds. And this is like modern day, right? This is modern. So these men, um, Emirati men and Omani men, they wear... Most of them wear like the exact same thing every day. They wear like a white, long flowing thing with a black thing around their head and like a white flowing thing down the back of their head. And, and that's what they wear. They have like probably 18 of these things that all look almost the same. And then they have a friend who dresses the exact same as them and they wear this all the time. I mean, imagine if like every single day you wore the same thing that your best friend wore every single day. Like that would be, you'd be like, I'm, change, I'm changing, my, I'm changing my, my vibe, all right? And so it's just different. What they wear is different. Um, how they greet each other is different. Um, we were going to go meet with a friend of one of my friends who's American over there in the Middle East. And he said, okay, here's, here's how the, this guy's going to greet you. And I'm like, all right, tell me how it's going to go. And he's like, he, he's gonna, he's gonna, um, it's not going to be a handshake. It's going to be, he's going to come towards you like he's going to kiss you, but he's not going to kiss you. Okay? All right? So what do you mean? He's like, he's going to come in, he's going to like, you're going to touch noses and foreheads. He's going to make a clicking sound with his mouth. And I'm like, are you serious? And like, I have to do that? He's like, yeah, you have to do it. And so I'm like rehearsing in my head, like, okay, here's how it's going to go. Like, what if he just... You know, what if we accidentally, like, kiss her? I mean, that's going to be weird, you know? And so the greetings, they're different. Everything's different. Um, I mean, what's amazing is the women. The women mostly wear all black, everything covered except for the eyes. We go to this park, and there's like a 100 women all dressed the same. And some of our little kids are like, Mommy! And I'm like, how do y'all know who your mommy is? This makes no sense. I can see it in her eyes. It's, it's, cra- it's just so different and so strange to me from where I come from. There are customs. So like when you go, we were told like all these rules, like here's the rules in the Middle East. As a man, you can't be nice to women. 
Like, you have to, like, ignore them. And if I'm walking there, I can't be like, good day, ma'am, good day, ma'am, good day. I can't, I can't greet people because I'm not, that's not my wife. You have to just walk and be like, I'm not looking at anybody. I'm not going to talk to anybody except for another guy. Like, it's just so different. It's just so different in that part of the world. I mean, I'll be honest with you guys. I felt culture shock when I moved from Virginia, where I'm from, to Texas. I mean, that was different for me. It was a completely, I felt like an alien when I first came to live in Texas about 20 years ago. In fact, everyone knows this is true, but you, you guys, you Texans, man, you guys have, you got a lot of state pride. That's what you call it. I just call it arrogance, but that's just me. But um, you have state pride. In fact, the, the, one of the first people that I ever came in contact with, this girl who's from Texas, and she was like bragging on Texas and and I was just like, I mean, just stop with all the Texas stuff. And she's like, wait, where are you from? And I was like, Virginia. And she goes, what is Virginia known for? And I was like, stuff? I mean, we got like eight presidents to our name. I mean, that's pretty good, right? And uh, she's bragging on Texas and stuff like that. And so Texas is, is its own little culture. We know that everybody... Every state makes fun of another state, right? New Yorkers make fun of New Jersey. Virginia makes fun of West Virginia. North Carolina makes fun of South Carolina. And Texas makes fun of everybody. Everybody is inferior to Texas, right? It's true. Amen. Amen. So I felt culture shock when I first came here. Um, some things were just strange to me, like girls driving pickup trucks. That was strange to me. I had never seen that before where I'm from. Uh, girls wearing cowboy boots. Anyone wearing cowboy boots was strange to me when I first moved here. Um, homecoming mums. Whose idea was that? Those things are hideous. I don't understand the homecoming mums. It looks like Hobby Lobby threw up on your shoulder. It's disgusting. When my daughter is of age, I will set that thing on fire, I promise you. It's ridiculous. So, chicken fried steak. I mean, whose idea was that? Chicken fried steak. Make up your mind, either eat chicken or eat steak, but don't do the both thing, right? So there are things that are different. When I first came here, I was in culture shock when I first came to Texas. And here's something else about Texas. On a more serious note, Texas is called um, the buckle of the Bible belt, or we say it's, it's like the centerpiece of the Bible belt. And what that often means is some of the biggest churches are right here in Texas. We know that. But even the Bible Belt, as different as it is down here versus other parts of the, of the U.S., the Bible Belt's becoming increasingly less Christian. In fact, the whole U.S. is moving to what's called more of a post-Christian um, realm. And what I mean by that is um, many years ago, if you asked people in our country, and even our state of Texas, what are you, 
religious affiliation, most would say, I'm Christian. This is not the case anymore. Whether they were or they weren't, they would say it, but this is not the case anymore. In fact, some researchers, they ranked all these cities and how, what they call post-Christian they are um, in, in the t- state of Texas and also in the U.S., and by that, they mean there's a large percentage of people who no longer believe in God. They believe the Bible has errors, and they're not part of a church. And so they rank these different parts of the U.S. and parts of Texas um, and try to figure out how post-Christian are certain areas of our country and also our state. Now, the highest-ranking places are probably what you would expect. You have the Northeast and the Northwest, Right? Now, out of the four largest Texas cities, so you've got Austin, San Antonio, DFW, and Houston, which Texas city do you think is considered the least Christian? Wow. Must be a lot of Aggies in here is all I've got to say. They're like, Austin, you know. So, so it's true. That is the most post-Christian city in the state of Texas. But I want you to understand something. Listen. Guess what other city, and this is nationwide, top 100 post-Christian cities in our, in our country. Number 64 on the list is Temple, Texas. Yeah. Where we live made the top 100 post-Christian. And here's what's alarming about that is I know you think of it, you're like, oh, this, is, this area is all Christian. Well, it's not. And you know it's not. And so this, you've got to understand, like this, even in the Bible Belt, we are going to see, be seen as strangers and alien to the culture in which we live. So I want you guys to do your first uh, three questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss questions one, two, three. Okay, so I know all of you guys aren't necessarily done yet, but I want to discuss with you that there are really three ways that Christians can view themselves in the culture. The first two are wrong, and the last one is right. So um, there's three ways Christians can view themselves. The first one is seeing themselves as complete aliens. So you can look at yourself in the culture and say, I'm going to totally check out. I'm going to uh, remove myself. I'm going to avoid people that aren't like me as much as possible. And so you see yourself as a complete and total alien. and don't even try to engage people around you. The second way is seeing themselves as tourists. So when you go on a, when you, when you guys go overseas and you're on some kind of a trip, uh, you are a tourist. You don't live there. You're not a resident. You're, you don't live there. You are, a, you're on tour. You are, you are trying to take in all the fun and excitement that place has to offer, and you're just passing through. So some Christians might see themselves as, yeah, I'm a Christian, but, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take in all the world has to offer and not contribute anything back to it or try to engage it. I'm just going to consume, consume, be a tourist. Just consuming experiences. The third way you can see yourself is, as we said, is as a resident alien. And this is what you and I need to view ourselves as. We live here, but we're not from here. 
We live here, but it's not home. This is not home for us. And you've got to find this balance of recognizing your alien status while living as a resident here. So we seek to understand our culture, but we don't assimilate to it because we want to engage it. And if you're living out your faith, you're going to appear strange to people that are around you. So look again. I want to turn you, go, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 5. We're going to look at verses uh, 1 and 2 again. So when Peter calls these people elect exiles, he's referring to this like resident alien status that they're supposed to be living out. And in verse 2 he says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now the main thing I want you to see from this section is our salvation involves the whole trinity. Most of us think of salvation as involving Jesus. You know, I asked Jesus into my heart. I put my faith and trust in Jesus. And salvation, when you now become Christians, it involves the entire Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Trinity is, we believe that God is one, but there are three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they're all equally God, but different in function. And so this verse is interesting. Father, it says, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. So the Father, it says he foreknows us. That doesn't mean he just knows the future. It means he sets his covenant love on his people beforehand. That means he calls us, he chooses us, he knows us. Then Spirit It says, in the sanctification of the Spirit, so you are an elect exile because of the sanctification of the Spirit, meaning the Spirit has set you apart. So let's just talk for a minute about that. If you are having trouble with the tension of feeling like an exile or feeling like a resident alien in the culture in which you live, in the classroom that you're in, on the team that you're on, You can take some comfort knowing that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying you and He has set you apart. If you want to blame someone, you can blame the Holy Spirit, but what I will tell you is He has sanctified you and He is sanctifying you. And He's making you new and it's difficult and troublesome, but He's making you new and He sanctifies you. For obedience to Jesus Christ, the point of salvation is not just to get a ticket stamped to some other place, a rite of passage to some other place, but it's for you to obey Jesus. The reason why God sets his covenant love on you and the Spirit sanctifies you is so you can have an obedient life as you follow after Jesus. The whole Trinity is involved in in your salvation. Then there's this weird phrase, and for sprinkling with his blood. Now what in the world is, is Peter getting at? Well, this image comes from Exodus chapter 24. We're going to look at that. Exodus 24, verses uh, 6 to 8. Here's some background. 
the people were making a covenant. God was making a covenant with the people that they're going to invade the land of Canaan. He's going to give them the land. And now there's a covenant being created. So God wants Moses to um, solidify this covenant through sacrifice. And so look at Exodus chapter 24, verses 6 to 8. It says, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And now watch this. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So just picture this scene like playing out in front of you. Moses takes the blood from the sacrifices and throws it up against the altar. And then it says he takes the other half and he just starts walking around and just throwing it on all the people as they're sitting there. Like, I don't know how this, how this played out, but he's throwing blood on people. Now, I don't know if he explained why he was doing this. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But this was to symbolize something really powerful. That the people of God, because of the sacrifice, they are covered by the blood of the sacrifice. And you know the image, if you know the story of Jesus, the image is you and I are covered in the blood of, we are covered by the blood of Jesus. But we're also washed in the blood of Jesus, which is kind of a weird idea. But we are cleansed because of the blood of Christ. And this Exodus 24 scene is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen and what happens to us through Jesus Christ. Our sinful mess is covered by the bloody mess of what Jesus did on the cross. And so we're, we're covered. We're covered by his blood. Now before we read this next section of, of 1 Peter, go back to um, 1 Peter again. And we're going to look at the, the remaining verses here. And before I read this section, I need to just prepare you for a minute. If you're sitting in here today and you would put yourself in the category of, of just bored, you're a Christian, but you're just bored. You, you feel like, yeah, it just feels ordinary, it, it feels mundane, it feels like no big deal, I've heard this, I've done this my whole life, I go to church every Sunday and most Wednesdays, I'm just, my parents are Christians, Brother, everyone's Christian that I know. I just, I, I, I believe it, but I'm just bored by it. And don't know how to get myself out of the funk that I'm in. And so if that's you or has ever been you, then I want you to read with me verses 3 to 5 because this passage, I think, is for all of us that are in that boat. Look at verses 3 to 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance 
that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This whole section, verses 3 through 5, is about one thing, and it's about the greatness of salvation. The greatness of our salvation. This is a praise section. And I know that I didn't read anything there that like blew you away, where you thought, oh, I never saw that before. Or I, I didn't realize that point or that idea. I recognize this is, you probably already know the stuff in here. But I think you got to understand, this is Peter just belting out in praise how great our salvation is. So if someone asks you why you're a Christian, what would you say? Would you say, well, you know, just was raised that way and, you know, just kind of what I believe. And, or maybe you weren't raised that way. Maybe you are raised not in a Christian home and you've decided to submit your life to Jesus. And maybe you might say, well, you know, I've, I've studied and I've seen everything and I've weighed it all out and it just seems to make the most sense to me, so therefore I'm a Christian. No, that is not why you're a Christian. Do you know why you're a Christian? Why I'm a Christian? You are a Christian for one reason. And it's because of the great mercy of God. And that's it. It's because of His mercy. If someone asks you why you're a Christian, the answer is one thing, and it's because of His mercy. And that's it. Let's just start there. It's because of His great mercy. And it's not just, yeah, 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 He's merciful. No, it's His great mercy. He has given us new birth. This verse passage talks about the new birth, this new life that He has given us, this new citizenship, this new standing before God. And whenever you read 1 Peter, it's like you can hear Peter's excitement. Peter struck me as an exciting kind of a person. We see that as he sticks his foot in his mouth all the time. But Peter is letting praise just spring forth from him because of the greatness of this salvation. And look what it leads to. Every single word is important. He doesn't just give you hope, but he gives you a living hope. This is not just, I hope one day I get to be married, or I hope one day I get to go to this school or that school. This is a living hope. This is affecting you here and now. This is a living hope that's indwelling in you because of Jesus. It's a certain expectation of a future event, and it brings you hope now. And this hope is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is something we take, I think, for granted. Every Easter we celebrate the resurrection, and I think you and I, we're detached from it. We think of, yeah, 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 I've heard it already. I've heard all that, the cross, the resurrection. We'll do that, we'll go find Easter eggs, and that's, that's what we'll do. No, the, the resurrection. You have this living hope because it is grounded in the resurrection. When you and I go through suffering or persecution of any kind, suffering always feels like parts of your life are just being stripped away. 
All the things that you find that are, find comfort in are just being sort of peeled away, stripped away. This is the essence of suffering. But if you think about suffering and the way God wants us to think about it, suffering is God's way of getting us to the point where we are fully satisfied in him. So if it feels like things are being stripped away from your life, it's because they are. But God's trying to bring you to this point where you are fully satisfied in him. Another pastor named Tyler David, he says this, the only way to get through intense time of trial is to have a God-centered faith. If not, persecution will tear you apart. Persecution will cause you to run out of everything you thought you were. And then if you look at the passage again, here's the amazing news. When you and I are persecuted, we are guarded by God's power. God's power guards us. So this, this whole section, so if, you're, if you fit the category of, of what I just described a while ago, of someone who just, you're just a bored Christian, which at some point, that's everyone. I want you to hear these words from a guy named G.K. Chesterton. And I want you to just focus, like turn your attention this way and look at the words and let them sink in. Let them, this is a long quote, so bear with me. He's talking about the excitement of children. Because children have a bounding vitality. Because they are in spirit fierce and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. And I'll just leave the slide right there. My daughter is seven now. And I'm not sure how we came up with this little game, but she does this game where she would get on my shoulders, and when she was little, she'd be do, we still do it today somewhat, but get on my shoulders, and, and she'd be on my shoulders, and I would take her legs, and then I would, like, you know, rock her back over my back, upside down. And then I would do this move where I, like, put her on my back, and I kind of hunch over, then I, like, let her roll off my back, or grab her hands, so she won't hit the ground on her head, you know, and she rolls off and does a flip off my back, Right? And she loves it. She, she would always say, like, do it again, do it again, do it again. And so much excitement. And she, we weren't sure what to call this game. So she calls it, can we do the swing me over down to your bottom game? Like, yeah, sure. One time one of my students was over at the house, and, and she didn't know, didn't know boundaries. So she's like, she's like, hey, Jay, can we do the swing me over down to your bottom game? And Jay's like, what? I think I need to leave, you know. So little kids, what do they do? They love monotony. They love predictability. They love do it again, do it again, do it again. They love, they exult in that. Nothing really gets old for little kids. So go to the next part of the quote here. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony, meaning nothing ever gets old for God. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. Nothing ever grows old for God. 
God doesn't ever get bored. He's been here for eternity, but nothing ever gets old for him. I mean, you've, you've been here 14, 15, 16 years, and you're already bored. Some of you have been a Christian for maybe even a short time, and you're already bored by it, right? You just feel bored. And here's the reason why. I mean, we know that sin makes our heart grow cold. Sin makes us feel not excited anymore about our faith. It just has that hardening effect on us. And if it's not something obvious... Because we all know, when I say sin, you start thinking in your mind, you're like, oh, what, what did I do? What did I do? What did I do? No, I'm not referring to something egregious or something just totally out there. I'm referring to just, just cold heart, just hard heart, just, just sin of any form. If the gospel ever becomes boring, if God's grace ever gets boring to us, there's something, we know something's wrong in here. It's the easiest thing to diagnose. There's something wrong in here. Our salvation never gets old for God. So my prayer is it never gets old for us. So I want to ask you to do something this week. Nothing too crazy, but I want you to get your Bible out every morning for the next seven days and turn to First Peter Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. First thing you do in the morning, and get out of your bed and just read it. And read it for seven days in a row. My prayer is that God transforms how you see your salvation if you're a Christian. And if you're not yet a Christian, my prayer is that he calls you to himself. And that you would see how valuable and amazing this salvation is that he offers to you. Go ahead and finish with your last few questions at your tables.